right, good afternoon, everybody. How are you? Good. Um, I'd just like to welcome you all to the Program Executive Office for Ground Combat Systems Media Roundtable. Um, we've got about 30 to 45 minutes here, and most of it's going to be just open dialogue and Q&A. Um, I'd like to just take a moment to introduce our panel. Um, first, we have Major General uh, David Bassett, the PEO for Ground Combat Systems. Next to him, we have Colonel Glenn Dean, the PM for Striker Brigade Combat Team, followed by Colonel Jim Shermer, the PM for Armored Fighting Vehicles, uh, Colonel Mike Milner, the PM for Armored Multipurpose Vehicle, and Mr. Andrew DeMarco, the PM for our Main Battle Tank Systems. What we're going to do is General Bass is going to open up with a few comments, just uh, highlighting what's going on in the Ground Combat Systems portfolio, talk about a few things that um, are new and exciting and what we've been working on, and then we'll just open up the Q&A. Um, I'd like to limit to two questions to start with, and then if anybody has any follow-on questions afterwards, we can do that. Great? Okay, sir. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Can you hear me okay? All right. You know, it's, it's been just a little more than a year since the Army approved its combat vehicle modernization strategy last year at AUSA. And over the last 12 months, uh, I think we've been in a really dynamic time for combat vehicles for our Army, in spite of what is uh, widely recognized as a resource environment, which is not sufficient uh, for the, the systems that we need for our forces. So the CVMS outlined three new capabilities uh, predominantly focused on our IBCTs. Uh, the light reconnaissance vehicle, the ultralight combat vehicle, and mobile, for, mobile protected firepower. Only the last one, mobile protected firepower, is in my portfolio, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on today. For our ABCT systems, our armor brigade combat teams, uh, we're at, a, I think, a, a really pivotal time uh, for the development of our force. So we have upgraded versions of the Abrams, the SEP V3 that's in test today. We have the, an upgraded version of the Bradley that's in test today. Uh, and we have an upgraded striker for our WV Hull strikers with the engineering change proposal updates. Uh, each of those are focused on adding the capability to our combat vehicles of carrying the Army's network, as well as positioning those systems uh, for the future. Uh, in any resource environment, uh, we're not going to modernize our force fast enough that we're not going to have tanks and Bradleys in our Army for a very long time. And so these kinds of upgrades really position us uh, to be able to respond to a dynamic threat environment. Uh, and to have a system with some design margin that allows us to, to fight effectively. We also have, uh, will take here very shortly, by the end of December, we'll take delivery of uh, the first armored multipurpose vehicle into government tests, which is the culmination of more than uh, a year of design efforts with our prime vendor. Uh, and we're now uh, focused on building the prototypes that are necessary for our EMD test phase. And so the AMPV program uh, under our budget estimates, on schedule, uh, and moving forward quite effectively. And hopefully you've gotten a chance to check out the, uh, the medical evacuation vehicle down at the, the booth downstairs. Uh, that's, I think this is the first time many Army senior leaders have gotten to see that platform, and, and it's given them some insight into the trade-offs that we're going to face on all future combat vehicles uh, between interior space, protection levels, weight, size, uh, AMPV, is, is, uh, is built to a set of requirements, and I think across the board, uh, we see that as a system that the Army can fight out of going forward. It gives us enough protection for uh, a full range of operational uh, environments, uh, as well as providing the, the size inside for soldiers, as well as not being so large outside uh, that it presents a problem. Uh, we run into the situation now where almost any vehicle we build is criticized for being too small on the inside, 
and too big on the outside. And uh, we haven't come up with a technology that's going to change that, uh, but we are looking at how pragmatically we can balance those two factors. The Strike Lethality Program that was just getting started last year around this time uh, will deliver its first vehicle into test by the end of December on budget, actually under budget, on schedule, uh, to meet the needs of the 2nd Cavalry Regiment in Europe as we add additional lethality into that formation. And uh, that's been a tremendous success in terms of the cooperation uh, between uh, General Dynamics and Kongsberg, who was selected as the turret vendor. We held a competition late last year to select uh, the turret uh, and the integration of that turret competitively. Uh, and uh, the PM, as they've looked at balancing uh, the, the, the risk of developing a new system with the schedule that's desired to move out aggressively and quickly. And so in an era where everybody talks about acquisition reform and they point to the acquisition process as bureaucracy laden and, 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 and uh, something that keeps us from getting what we need, uh, the, the gentlemen to my left have been able to take that acquisition process, tailor it to what they're buying, and make pragmatic, common-sense choices about how best to proceed. And so uh, we're across the board uh, delivering to our estimates uh, and delivering capability now uh, after some time in investment. And so there was a study done a number of years ago that looked at the acquisition process. And they said, if you built nothing, right, if you said, we're not really building anything, just going through the process, how long will that take? And, and the answer was a certain number of years just to go through the bureaucracy. Uh, at the same time now, when I turn over to these guys, I say, look, imagine that the bureaucracy took no time whatsoever, and how long will it take you to actually go build a, a combat vehicle with all of its parts and complexity? And, and that's also not that short. Uh, by the time you energize that supply chain, and, and for these guys, I said, don't make it about the process. Make it about design, build, test, and field. Tell me how long that takes, and let's make sure that we can handle the bureaucracy in parallel to the things we have to do anyway, so that it doesn't take any longer than necessary to get quality systems out to our soldiers. And so we've done that on systems like strike lethality, where we've bent the process to our will. We got the acquisition process largely out of the way, and in fact, Congress was kind enough to budget the money up front for strike lethality. So now as we face a continuing resolution environment, strike lethality is unaffected because they got their money in the first year. And so I don't like PMs that tell me that they can't get something done because of the process. The process is what it is. We'll make some changes to it. We'll improve it over time. But I like PMs who can bend the process to their will. They can get meaningful, common-sense decisions out in front of Army leadership. And the Chief's involvement in acquisition over the last 12 months has been nothing but beneficial in terms of making sure that, that he's got a clear sight picture on what we're asking our acquisition professionals to deliver, and then laying out the real time it takes to design, build, test, and field combat vehicles. Uh, just for some comparison points, you know, you know, GM may come out with a new car every year, but when they build a whole new product line, that's an investment that happens over many years. And you know, Apple may give you a new iPhone every year, but I guarantee you the development of the iPhone didn't start when they released the iPhone 7. In fact, Samsung right now, I think, is figuring out that maybe some of their processes didn't work that well. It comes down for us to activities and not necessarily process. So we have to deal with it, but I've asked the team to identify where we can tailor it and where we can get the decisions elevated to the right level in the Army where we can get whatever waivers we need. So 
so that we're doing the right amount of tests, the right amount of design, and we're delivering quality vehicles out the back end. And so in this environment uh, where we're frequently criticized for not delivering, we're, we've got new vehicles, of a, new, new versions of Abrams, Bradley, and Stryker in test. The PIM is in its operational test right now and in low-rate production, and PIM is delivering under budget. And Stryker Lethality, which was just in, in its genesis a year ago, will deliver under budget and on schedule with the first vehicle into test this year. So I know there's never a lot of reporting on good acquisition news, but across the board, this team is delivering, and I, I certainly look forward to your questions. Anybody else? Dan. Um, for the urgent need, where does it stand for the overall uh, fleet, and how will that touch the urgent need program, if at all? Okay. So uh, we have the pleasure to announce that uh, just two weeks ago, uh, we received the approval to start uh, what we're calling ECP2, which is the fleet lethality program uh, for Stryker. Um, a little bit different than our prior ECP programs. Uh, the, the current ongoing Stryker ECP is an automotive uh, and powertrain upgrade that addresses uh, the entire fleet, so it's common to all platforms. ECP2 uh, is intended to address mission equipment package across um, a number of the individual variants of the Stryker fleet, each of which provides a contribution to lethality. So it will be actually multiple programs flying in formation, if that makes any sense. Um, the first two elements of that, which were what were green-lighted uh, just two weeks ago, is giving us the uh, ability to fire the Javelin missile under armor uh, from the remote weapon station on the Stryker and making improvements to our uh, anti-tank guided missile vehicle by bringing its uh, co-acquisition subsystem essentially up to the caliber uh, of the ITAP that's deployed on Toham V. So it gives us far target locate and networked uh, lethality and some optics uh, upgrade uh, capability. So that's the first two elements. The continuation, what everyone is looking for, of what else are you doing for cannon arm strikers for 2CR um, will be shifted to the right um, to allow us to take advantage of some opportunities. The first advantage, uh, opportunity is learning from what 2CR does when they field uh, the first 30 millimeter armed vehicles. There's a lot of discussion within the striker community about what's the right operating concept for a cannon armed striker. Is it still the infantry carrier as envisioned? Uh, simply supported by a longer range, more lethal weapon, or do you begin to shape the formation differently when you add that capability? The 2CR deployment will allow us to gain data to answer that question. Um, second, we have an S&T project uh, going on with uh, the Armaments Research uh, and Development Center Picatinny uh, to continue to mature uh, 30, caliber, uh, 30 millimeter cannon. Uh, fire control, we've got some novel fire control ideas, all of which uh, we want to use in the next iteration of cannon arm striker. Um, and so given those opportunities, what we see is that we will re-engage um, what would be a competitive acquisition for a cannon armed vehicle uh, sometime in the 19 to 20 time frame, let requirements uh, based on what we learned from 2CR settle out, um, and then apply that solution across the fleet. The requirements could be very close to what we're doing for 2nd Cavalry Regiment, or they could be uh, significantly different depending on what the Army learns and, and what uh, you know, potential threats and, and concepts push it. But in the interim, we're, we're launching the, uh, the RWF's uh, Javelin effort uh, and MITES effort. So what I, what I asked Glenn to lay out was, was a, the best plan for the dollars he had. 
and, and that created some opportunities to learn from these other things as opposed to rolling directly into another Canon program. Frequently, we seem to get criticized for not laying out plans for money we don't have. And, uh, and, and so c across the board, uh, the way we're affording all the things we're affording is by producing things at, at really low rates, which gives us some operational flexibility to ramp up if dollars are available, but create fairly slow modernization across our formation and cause us to pay more than we necessarily would have to for the same system. So the production rates on AMPI are, are going to be modest when we start producing. I, I, I'm sure uh, uh, Mike will give you the, the production rate on that. Uh, the production rates on Stryker uh, for the ECP could be as little as one brigade every three years because you're just not giving it the level of resources that create a, uh, an efficient production rate. And the modernization rate of Tanks and Bradleys uh, are, are going to be certainly less than a brigade a year. Uh, it's not clear how much less than a brigade a year, but it will be less than a brigade a year. And those are all symptoms of that budget environment. So please don't take away from this. Because I tell you that we're delivering on budget and on schedule doesn't mean that the resources in this portfolio are sufficient for what the Army is asking us to do. But we're, we're paying for it on the back end with relatively slow production rates and with extended time frames necessary to touch all the, 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 the vehicles in the fleet. That's the, in fact, we're with ECP-1, not yeah. ECP. We, we are fielding our third double behold brigade right now. It's without the ECP. We built that over three years. Um, in fact, we started fielding as the tail end of production is still ongoing because it takes us that long. The fourth brigade, with, uh, the, which will be the first built with the um, powertrain upgrades from Striker ECP-1, right now envisioned to be built over three years. Uh, across, uh, thank you. Across all your programs, uh, what is the status of work on active protection systems? There's been a lot of interest in the Russians doing things with active protection uh, in Ukraine, the Russians and the not officially Russians. Uh, and I know there's been a lot of high level interest in the Army in finding a near term solution as well as, some, as developing maps as sort of the long term overarching solution. Yeah, so, so I think you've got it right. The Army's got really a two part approach for developing active protection, the longer term. Uh, strategy through maps to give us a system that's adaptable and modular to use across any potential vehicle in our family, and then some near-term efforts that Glenn can get into uh, that look at, at, at uh, installing, characterizing, and then giving Army senior leaders uh, the, the, the right amount of data to make a good decision about whether some off-the-shelf systems uh, can, be, uh, can be employed in the nearer term. Glenn? Yeah, so active protection is hard. I mean, I really hate to be the guy responsible for active protection. Oh wait, that's me. Um, so I'm, I'm taking the lead for PO Ground Combat Systems for our expedited active protection system effort. It's a partnership with TARDEC. Um, it's actually a, a subset of the MAPS program. We're taking activities that were, were going to occur after MAPS transition to a program of record, which is planned in about the 20 time frame um, as their you know, sort of common architecture matures. And that's the vehicle integration activities. Right, so we, uh, we decided, how, how, do you, how do you go faster? Take a bunch of those activities that you need to learn and prepare for and bring them up and execute them more or less in parallel with the technology development. So expedited active protection is an activity to take um, non-developmental or claimed non-developmental um, active protection systems, install them on our combat platforms, characterize them so we can define both what the active protection systems do 
and what those impacts are on the host platform. Um, challenging problem. All of our platforms are challenged for space, uh, weight, power. How much uh, additional space, weight, and power is needed for an APS? What capability can be traded off, if any, in order to accept the APS? And then what environments, um, what tactics, techniques, and procedures need to change? Uh, what level of performance is acceptable? Uh, expedited APS um, will drive to an Army decision point right now, uh, probably late uh, 17, um, where we lay out, okay, for the NDI systems um, that are participating, what's their level of performance as, as demonstrated in the series of characterization testing that we do? What are the impacts of the platforms? What are the unknowns? So safety qualification. How much risk are you willing to assume? Are the systems that we see, you know, they meet all of our existing safety standards? If they don't, are you willing to accept some risk in that area? Um, and uh, if so, or, or if you're, you're not willing to take all that risk, what additional activity do we need to, to do to burn down that risk uh, before you make a decision about fielding? And then if there is an urgent need and um, there is um, sufficient acceptance of level of performance, then we can move on uh, potentially to fielding one of those NDI systems as an interim until we transition to a, a MAPS baseline. I think it's important to realize that APS is not the kind of thing that you just strap on and go. Uh, it's got to be tailored and tuned to the system that you apply it to because each vehicle presents a different uh, radar picture that has to be processed for each of, you know, for whatever sensors are the, that have to detect incoming threats. The, the effectors are in different places on different vehicles. And it, and it takes some work, it takes some engineering labor to do that. And we're doing that work today uh, in partnership with TARDEC. Uh, and so the timelines associated with putting APS on a vehicle that we're working to, towards are extraordinarily fast because uh, you got to go source the, you know, you got to source the effectors and the whole system, and then you got to match it to the platform. And that matching to the platform is not something that's either trivial or uh, short. So it takes a certain amount of testing to perform that as well as to demonstrate the capabilities of that system. Now, the fact that the guy is that more, that tests on striker first or maybe even <laughs> so, so I, I, I like uh, having individual colonels that are responsible for things, and we already had poor Colonel Jim Shermer in charge of MPF, and uh, Glenn had a little extra time on his hands. Right. So I, I, am, <laughs> I am coordinating the activities across the three programs. The individual platforms, of course, are making their technical decisions associated with, uh, with their systems, but we're trying to make sure they um, are using the same structure that we've, we've got a very detailed series of questions that uh, we intend to ask and, and, and answer to the extent we can through characterization, as you imagine. We're talking about a one-year activity. So about, in about six months of that is the design and build uh, portion, and then about six months of that is, uh, is the characterization. And you'll note that I use the term install and characterize very deliberately. So what I, we are not doing at this phase is integrating those systems. For example, I'm not going to crack into the Abrams software to make sure it interfaces at a subsystem level with an APS system. Because what if you pick the wrong APS system? Redoing uh, platform level software is expensive, time consuming, and, and risky. And you kind of want to make sure you're, you're close with the system that you're going to integrate when you finally get to that point. So we're doing an installation. It's an applique, intended to be a fieldable applique, assuming the Army's willing to take uh, whatever risks that we learn uh, along the process. But uh, as we're already seeing as we, uh, as we begin down this road, 
the uh, close coupling between the design of the APS and the way that it is installed or integrated on the platform is uh, it's very critical to your overall performance. Now I use the term characterize instead of test um, because we're intending to show what the system does as opposed to walking in with here's the no-go no-go point. If you don't meet this bar, you do not go forward. So that the Army can then sort of set its requirements bar appropriately if, if we're willing to submit. Yeah. Sure, could you talk a little bit about uh, active protective uh, or mobile protective firepower? And also, have you seen the demonstrator down at GD uh, that uh, they put together to kind of address this uh, want from uh, MCOE? Yeah, I mean, it's right, right in the door there. I don't know if I can miss it. Um, yeah, hard so to miss. Pardon? Hard to miss. It is hard to miss. So I, I'm really encouraged uh, that General Dynamics would, would uh, take the time and the money to kind of show their, uh, their version of sort of the art of the possible by taking some existing vehicles and bringing them together uh, in a way that helps us understand that requirement better. Um, th there's a difference between a sort of a tech demonstrator, concept vehicle, and a production-ready vehicle. And so in our mobile protective firepower strategy, uh, we very much wanted uh, to get the, the, the Army to speak definitively on requirements and then give industry an opportunity to provide feedback on those requirements uh, in the form of some written white papers and some other dialogue, and then also to give industry time to get ready for a fairly rapid production program. So the time that any program takes really, deter you know, I kind of keep going back to design, build, and test. Well, in any program, you're either going to pay industry to design it or you're not. And what we've said in MPF is we're not willing to wait for you to go through a lengthy bottoms-up design process. What we are willing to do is to, to give you some time on your own to get a design ready to compete, and then we'll evaluate that into a fairly rapid uh, engineering manufacturing development phase, not unlike what the Marine Corps, say, has done with ACV 1.1 where they kind of projected the requirements to industry, got some feedback, did some risk mitigation activities, uh, and then really laid out a program where they didn't pay industry to design very much. They asked them to deliver within a fairly short period of time. We're trying to model that same kind of strategy. And I think much like that strategy, the, the, the best way to execute the strategy on MPF were if we had sufficient resources to get more than one vendor. So uh, although we're still in the early stages of laying out the, the total resources that will be necessary to do this, uh, I think we can we can learn a lot from the Marine Corps and from other programs that have gone down this path, like JLTV, where we benefited greatly from the competition of having more than one vendor. What is it exactly you want in MPF? I mean, do you want a light tank? Do you want something that's air droppable? Can you can you lay it out for us? So, uh, and I'm not just going to dish this to, to Jim because you asked a hard question. I'm going to. So, so we laid out a, a framework of requirements. Uh, which described kind of the left and right limit. And those went all the way up to General um, Milley at the AROC along with the other four stars. And so those, are, those requirements were things like 32 tons max weight. Uh, those are requirements like uh, a set of targets that you need at least a 50 millimeter cannon to destroy, certain levels of protection. And we shared that with industry down at Fort Benning. Uh, General Wesley, the new man maneuver center commander, we had a session with industry to lay out those kinds of requirements. And so the airdrop requirement is one that clearly, if, if the vehicle is 32 tons, it's not airdroppable. Uh, at the same time, we wanted to make sure that we, we left our requirements at this stage broad enough so that we understood the full breadth of what might be possible. So 
we're not saying we want a light tank. We're saying we want uh, a system for the Infantry Brigade Combat Team that offers mobility, protection, and firepower, and we're giving uh, the technical requirements of how much mobility, how much protection, and how much firepower. Now, the vehicles that you've seen shown here at AUSA that, that uh, you know, BAE has got the, the M8 sitting out front and, and General Dynamics has their tech demonstrator, uh, you could argue those look like light tanks. Uh, but, but we're trying to be open-minded about, you know, this is about a certain amount of effects, a certain amount of protection, and a certain amount of mobility. Evolving, I would imagine. Can you give us any additional specs as far as how fast this might go, or what kinds of munitions it might fire, what kinds of mission sets it would be ideally suited for? I'm going I'm to let Jim answer. Okay, so uh, the, the the draft requirements have been communicated industry at an industry day back at Fort Benning. So we put out kind of the high level uh, requirements. We're not all the way down, obviously, to a product spec, uh, although we're starting work on that pretty soon. Uh, this is going to go into all the IBCTs. So if you, what you know about the IBCT, those are the sorts of missions you can expect. So generally austere environments, it's got to be able to go where the infantryman goes, which is one of the reasons why the Army is interested in a smaller vehicle, uh, not quite the size of an Abrams uh, tank, for example, because in a lot of these uh, more austere environments, you can expect bridges that can't support uh, heavier armor. You can expect narrow, narrow streets. Uh, but the Army is looking for a track vehicle because we want to be able to go over rubble buildings. Uh, if there's burned out cars or whatever, we want to be able to just drive over the top of them. So some of those, the, the ability to move with the infantry is pretty important. I think that drove some of the mobility requirements uh, as well as the desire to keep it fairly small. On the lethality side, uh, again, we're, we're in a resource-constrained environment, so the Army really doesn't want to pay to develop a new suite of ammunition. So the desire is to keep keep the weapon to something that's already in the Army inventory. Uh, so that would probably be uh, 105 or 120, although the lower threshold set at 50. There was a 57 millimeter program that I think some of the senior leaders were interested in. I think the Navy has that weapon. Um, I suspect it's a little large for, for this particular vehicle. We haven't fully investigated that yet. Nevertheless, we don't want to develop a new suite of ammunition, so it's probably going to be one of those two. And again, remember, MPF is part of a, of a suite of vehicles. So the IPCT is going to be getting the ground mobility vehicle, the light reconnaissance vehicle, and the MPF. So if LRV comes in with a medium cal cannon, uh, that plus the javelin that the soldiers already have, then the MPF really brings that larger gun for bunkers that are too large uh, for a medium cal cannon to take care of, or if there's perhaps light armored vehicles that are encountered. Uh, and there's a lot of capability. We have a pretty robust suite of 105 ammunition as well as 120. So there's a lot of targets you can address with that. Thank you. Uh, so my question is more about the overall um, modernization program for the Army. Uh, right now, you've, you're modernizing the Abrams, you're modernizing the Bradley, you're modernizing the Stryker, but these are all, you know, most of these vehicles have been around for quite some time. Um, the, there are competitors out there who are developing new vehicles like the Russian Armada family, for example, or the Chinese with their, um, with their Type 99. Um, have you guys started looking at the future of uh, what might eventually happen? I mean, the Abrams can't go on forever. I mean, are you looking at something that could follow on? I think you've got to look at, at where you get to the limits of where those platforms can be evolved. Um, frequently, you get this, 
uh, people will say things like, well, the Abrams you have today is the same Abrams tank you had you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And the truth is they're nothing like one another. Uh, and so we're looking at, at what are those technologies and capabilities that you can get on the existing vehicle so that you can evolve maybe at a lower cost given the constraints in the portfolio versus what are those capabilities that you really have to replace the vehicle to go out and get. Uh, and so when the Army allowed the ground combat vehicle to uh, conclude, geez, am I still talking around that? Um, when we allowed that program to end at the end of this technology development phase, we did a lot of analysis that showed that the investments that we're making in Bradley, Abrams, Paladin, and AMPV offer significantly more combat capability than we would have gotten with just a, uh, a replacement for the Bradley in that formation. And so while you may see, uh, you may see other brand new vehicles, it's, at the end of the day, you know, a combat vehicle is about a box and a mobility system and a lethality system and communications and some other things. And if you can take all those things and put them on an existing vehicle, then maybe you don't have to have a whole new vehicle from scratch given the risk associated with that kind of development. We do know where the limits are, right? So when you start looking at Bradley and you say, um, you know, we want, we want you know, we're, are we limited by the powertrain, for example, because of the size of the engine cavity in the Bradley? You do run into those limits. And it's, that, it's there where you may need to replace the, the hull, for example, but maybe you retain some elements of the existing vehicle. AMP-V is a great example of that, where you've got a brand new hull, but, it's, but we were able to, to, to build it on the schedule that we built it on because it maintained some of the Bradley legacy design. Uh, but it is a new hull from a force protection and size standpoint, and you really do see that when you see it on the floor. You can see the additional space uh, inside the AMP-V that you wouldn't get inside of a Bradley. Um, but if we were to bring in a new unproven powertrain, that just adds risks on top of that. So we've been doing this, I think, to, to build new capabilities in an incremental way over time. It's also what our budget supports. So, you know, I'd love to have a brand new, I'd love to have replacement programs today for Abrams and Bradley. And we could lay in those, you know, the plans to go do that, uh, but it doesn't fit in this portfolio in this budget environment. And so instead, we're looking at, you know, when you, you know, do you want to do an ECP3 on Bradley or do you want to bridge to a new platform? And we've got some decision points laid in that sort of allow us to make an informed decision on what technologies you just can't get at evolving your system. Yes. Steve technology. Um, I think it, uh, the general just hit on what I think is one of the hidden success stories that doesn't get too much um, uh, press, unfortunately. And that's the uh, more of a logistics benefit to a degree, but it's significant with the M109A7, uh, the Bradley, the Amphi, the great deal of commonality and logistics supportability in that. That's a, a move that's been in some time being developed and is now a success story, as you can see, being implemented in front of us. But how do you intend to try to continue that? Because now you have possibilities of a new system and an MPF on and so forth, you know, you're, we've got a great success and now we find ourselves potentially, you know, corrupting that, if you will. So, so um, I, I'm going to ask uh, uh, Colonel Milner to talk a little bit about the commonality of AMPI and, and those other platforms, and then I'll talk about MPF, if that's okay. And so right now, the AMPI is about 60, 60, 70 percent common with the Bradley A4 that, that's going through its testing now, and more importantly, though, it's, it's almost, a, it's practically 100 percent common with Bradley and Tim. A, A4 PIM and the A7 uh, Paladin in terms of its drivetrain. It's, it's 
its engine, its transmission, final drive, uh, track, suspension, shock absorbers, everything like that. Those are all common parts now. So we're all buying the same parts. We're supplying the same parts to the field. They only have to carry one kind of track for those three different vehicles. And it's, it's been a good success story there, especially from the, the logistics side. They're really, they're really excited about having that commonality have to carry lots of stuff around the battlefield and to supply lots of stuff. That's, that's a win for us. Uh, maintaining it is not an easy process, though. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a labor of love between Jim's group and mine. Every time we, we see something we may want to change to make it a little better for one platform, we've got to make sure we don't break that commonality for the other platforms at the same time. So it's, it's a constant process of, of reviewing. So yes, we finally achieved that common platform concept, and uh, we're finding that there's, there's challenges with that, too. So we're, we're hitting those hard and, and working through them. So on MPF, I think it's important to remember that MPF is going to be unique in an IBCT no matter what we do. And so uh, I think we're just now getting to the, to the start of doing the analysis on what that means for the IBCT core structure for fuelers and ASL and all the other things that it's going to take to support a track vehicle inside an IBCT formation. And so making it common with ABCT won't really help me on MPF, at least not at this point. So just to add on to that, so one of the, one of the benefits of commonality in the ABCT is if, uh, if you have all those multiple platforms using the same parts, you're able to reduce the total number of parts that are carried and the total, uh, the amount of tasks that the maintainers have to get trained on can shrink a little bit. They kind of get that common look and feel. The IBCT is going to be a different formation uh, fighting off on its own, and so you won't really get that benefit inside the IBCT. Now, it could, there would still be some commonality benefits at the wholesale level when the Army's buying you know, transmissions, there, there would be some benefit, but I think it'd be smaller, and certainly we wouldn't see the training uh, advantages for the mechanics inside the IBCT. So I think in this case, the, the business case advantages of wanting to look at what's already out there in the marketplace and having the different vendors bring us fairly mature solutions and what we're going to get out of that in terms of price and capability is probably going to outweigh what I think would be more marginal uh, benefits from commonality between MPF and the ABCT platform. This is an area, though, where i got to give General Dynamics uh, some credit for their tech demonstrator that they provided. And what they did was they started with the presumption that there's an opportunity to leverage all the Army's investment in Abrams. And so they're carrying that turret design and electronics and LRUs over from Abrams to their tech demonstrator, which is a pretty smart way of going about uh, offering a benefit maybe that the Army might not have thought of. So um, th this is exactly why I think competition is such a great thing in this space because we want to get the, the good ideas of all of our industrial-based partners as well as our partners uh, in the organic S&T community on how to best do this. So I, I, I just, I, again, it, 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 I'm, not, I'm not giving any preference to one vendor solution over another, but, but I'm appreciative of the thought that went into that idea. This may be an easy question, but has anything happened with the victory architecture So each of the ECPs we're doing uh, bring elements of the Victory architecture, and we're starting to see the adoption. Uh, the, the real payoff on Victory uh, is, uh, I think the obvious business case on Victory is when we start to go towards assured position navigation and timing. And so the replacement for the current Dagger uh, GPS receivers is something called M-Code, uh, which the Air Force is developing and the Army is going to be providing to the Army. It's more jam resistant and some other things. Well, it turns out, those are not as cheap as the old ones. And so having a common victory architecture on the platforms let us, lets us share 
position navigation and timing data with all the boxes that are on that platform. So we really only need to buy one or maybe two GPS receivers for a given platform instead of having uh, to buy that over and over again in every box that provides it for themselves today. So today on the platform, and it's mainly for timing, you know, the, 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 the jammer has its own GPS, the radio has its own GPS, the platform brings its own. We have some platforms that might have six or eight GPS chips on them by the time you load all those boxes. And with that common victory architecture, you can buy it once, share it on the Ethernet that's already in the platform, and do it in a way that's open. Now, we think there's other business cases beyond that. In fact, we've asked uh, recently, we got some, some results from uh, AT Kearney did some analysis for us on the business case associated with this, and it pays for itself really quickly. Any other questions? Um, for um, MPF, um, do you have a timeline for when you're hoping to uh, field that? Is there a long-term roadmap for that? I, I think our, our goal right now is, is FUE in 23. Uh, we're going to see what we can do to pull that to the left because, uh, again, in keeping with our strategy, uh, we're going to do a tech maturity evaluation as part of the source selection. So when we get the proposals in from industry, we're going to be measuring how far along their design is. So we're, you know, grading them on the capability they, they bring relative to the requirements set, but also how far along is their design. We'd like to see PDR plus level of maturity. Uh, so depending on how mature the, the solutions are that we select may allow us to trim some of that design and, and uh, build time that's built into the EMD. So that, that time could possibly pull to the left, but it's going to be dependent on what, on what comes in as well as to a certain extent the funding level. So, so milestone-wise, it's milestone B in 19, in 19 and then FUE in 23, which is only four years uh, from the start of that program with meaningful resources. And what that means is that industry has a couple of years to get ready for that competition. And we're asking them to make that investment. And in exchange for that, we have to be very confident about what our requirements are. Uh, the time it takes, you know, you, I'm going to take you back to design, build, and test, and you start dividing up that four years. We don't just design it and build it and put it in the field. We design it and we build a few. We build some prototypes. We shake those out and test. We refine our design, and then we put it into more significant production. And so uh, I, I don't personally believe that acquisition, that programs will go better if we just try to do that in one iteration. Right? There's lots of experience in history out there that says when we try to just do, make one cut through this without having the ability to build prototypes first, do some testing on them, understanding the design, updating the design, and then building more, it's significantly more effective in the, pro in the product out the back end. The JLTV program is probably one of the more recent examples of that. Uh, we had a three-year EMD program on JLTV. Everybody said they were production ready. There were changes made to every single vehicle as a result of that EMD program, and so the JLTV that you see on the floor today has benefited from that uh, in terms of reliability, in terms of cost, and there, there is a, you get something when you take the time to do a meaningful competition and to, and to drive towards a more mature design before you build a lot of something. You know, if you're really urgent, you go back to the MRAP program, we didn't bother with, with low-rate production or with prototypes on, on MRAP. We said, go, right? But you have to have a set that, that that is only for those things where you don't have the luxury of, and it's not really a luxury, where you can't take even the time necessary to build some prototypes and learn. 
because the last vehicles that came out of MRAP were nothing like the first vehicles that came out of MRAP. And, and you pay for that in dollars. And so on a, in a portfolio like this, with the budget we have, we cannot afford to point a money gun at this problem. We have got to be smart about how we buy. We have time for one more question. Go ahead. About the APS system overall, uh, do you think it's eventually possible to develop an APS system that might be able to intercept deployed uranium sable? The Russians claim they can do it. I don't think they're telling the truth. Uh, I just wanted to hear your take on it. The second part is, can you just go with the timeline for the MPS? So, so uh, the, the target set that you talked about, right? The threat you talked about, which is a kinetic round, is a challenging target set for any APS, and. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. Um, as far as the timeline, I'll pitch it back to Glenn. Right. So, um, again, the, we essentially have two, two activities. The expedited activity, which is the install and characterize. Um, we'll conclude our characterization activities at the end of fiscal 17. Actually, for Bradley, that'll roll into, into 18. It's just a much more difficult platform to, uh, to you know, install to because of its space weight and power challenges. Um, from that point, it really depends for those uh, systems, does the Army have an urgent need, and are we willing to accept whatever uh, risks and limitations those systems may have, and that will determine what the time frame is. If you ask me to pull out a crystal ball, I would say if the Army accepted every possible risk, you're still probably 18 to 24 months to fielding from that point because that's simply the time it takes to lay in the supply chain and build the systems. Uh, despite claims, the vast majority of APS uh, systems that are on the market are not actually in production, don't have warm production lines, and so you just can't go and buy them to install them. You have to lay all that work in. So you're looking at between the time you place your order, build the components, assemble them, get them to a site, install them on the vehicle, train the crews, and then say, okay, I have these significant formations ready to go. That's an 18 to 24 month process. And, and by if the you way, want to make any changes, then you add engineering time in to refine your design, build a prototype, verify that the design changes work before you go into production. And that 18 to 24 months isn't driven by in a bureaucratic process. It's driven by activities. And so, you know, I'll just, another data point, so that the turret that Kongsberg is going to produce for the, uh, the striker lethality vehicle has a supply chain that includes about 5,000 parts, okay? Um, laying in a supply chain doesn't happen overnight. And so it's, it's not too hard for companies to show demonstrators or tech demonstrators where they sort of build a one-off of something. And they can do that pretty quickly. But that, that's different than saying we're going to lay in a supply chain for a production line. And so, you know, I, I had just gotten back from the, the PIM production line out in uh, Oklahoma. And uh, what impressed me most about that production line was all the bins that were full of parts. And that's a lot of right now what Amphi is doing is filling the bins with parts to make sure we can manufacture those prototypes. And that's the difference between, say, a tech demonstrator or, or a 20-year-old M8 that's sitting out in the courtyard and the ability to manufacture more of them. So just because you see one doesn't mean you can build others. Uh, and so the M8, for example, has, you know, if you go out to that vehicle today, that powertrain isn't available, the electronics need modernization. There's things we know that industry needs to do to get ready for our competition. And so even if we wanted to go a whole lot faster, there still needs to be some time for them to get their designs ready. Otherwise, the, the fairly aggressive schedule that we've laid out would not be credible. Sir, do you have any closing comments? Uh, I think I just stole them. Okay. 
Gentlemen, thank you very much, and thank you all for your time this afternoon. If you have any follow-on questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. Thank you.